Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Gina Dawn Brooks was born November 28, 1975, and lived in Fredericktown, Missouri. On August 5, 1989, at the age of 14, she came home at 10 p.m. after attending her brother's baseball game. A short time later, Gina said she was going for a bike ride, and it's believed she was riding her bike to meet her boyfriend as he lived close to her. However, Gina didn't return home and was reported missing a few hours later at 2 a.m., Following her disappearance, witnesses came forward to report that they saw Gina standing near her church and that an old beat-up station wagon pulled up and was speaking to her. They said she got back on her bike and turned south on South Mine Lamont Avenue. Sometime later, Gina's boyfriend and another 12-year-old that was in the neighborhood reported hearing Gina screaming in the distance. A vehicle was then seen turning left on Franklin Street and possibly heading towards Highway 67. Later that evening, a person went to Fredericktown Police Department and reported finding a girl's bicycle in the 300 block of High Street. The bicycle turned out to be Gina's and it was located five blocks from her home and was in the area where the screams were heard coming from. Years later in 1996, three men were implicated in Gina's disappearance by Bright Squires' deathbed confession. Squires was dying from cancer and AIDS-related complications and implicated Nathan Danny Williams and himself in Gina's abduction and murder, along with other crimes. Williams was identified by a witness as the man seen seated in the back of the station wagon with Gina after she was taken, and witnesses were also able to identify Squires as the driver of the station wagon. Timothy Blue, a friend of both Williams and Squires, was initially implicated in Gina's disappearance as well. Blue told the FBI that Gina was buried in an abandoned meat freezer on his father's 96-acre property, but nothing was found, and he later admitted he lied to FBI agents about the location of Gina's remains. Williams pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder charge against him in 1999. Authorities believe that he was the person ultimately responsible for the murder of Gina, and Squires and Blue helped him cover up the crime. In 2003, the murder charge against Williams was dropped. However, he remains behind bars, serving a life sentence for forcible rape and sodomy of another victim. Also, Gina isn't the only victim he's accused of murdering. In 1975, he was charged for the murder of another young woman, but that charge was also dropped for lack of evidence. 
On top of all that, he is the suspect in the 1979 disappearance of 12-year-old Tammy Sertum. Blue was also charged with Gina's murder, but the charges were also later dropped due to lack of evidence. But he was charged and pleaded guilty to lying to investigators about where her body could be found. Authorities still believe the men were involved in Gina's presumed murder, but stated there is not enough evidence to convict them at trial. A shocking twist came about this year, 33 years after Gina was taken. A man by the name of Jason Boyer, an Army veteran, has posted multiple YouTube videos begging for people to listen to him, particularly law enforcement. He claims that he witnessed exactly what happened to not only Gina, but also a girl named Billy Joe and many other children at the Silver Mines Campground in Madison County, Missouri. He states that his aunt Sandra Sissel, Uncle Henry Leland, and Danny Williams and other adults are responsible for Gina's death and sex trafficking. Recently, he has been posting YouTube videos detailing the events that he witnessed firsthand after Gina was abducted and up to her murder. He said the night Gina was abducted, she was brought back to a campground where other adults and 15 other children were. Behind me is where um, the tent was, uh, one of the tents, and where I'm sitting at is a uh, um, picnic bench that is uh, at campsite number 12. Uh, this picnic bench is where um, it was uh, the first day um, in the morning after the um, they abducted Gina. They had my uncle and the park ranger slash police officer was sitting at the park bench with Gina. And um, they told me to come over. And uh, um, asked me to do things to her. Uh, I refused. The police officer got up and tossed me to the ground. I got back up. And they insisted I continue to do things to her. Um, Gina reached out her hand and put her hand on my waist and just literally said, do what they say. And she said, I trust you. And uh, I remember kissing her and um, my uncle threw me to the ground and um, said that he was going to make a woman out of her. And right behind me is where the tent was located and tossed her into the tent and began to assault her. All the children were being sexually assaulted, and when a law enforcement officer, along with his aunt and uncle, tried to force him to do certain things to Gina, he refused. Ultimately, his arm was broken twice, as well as his hand in the fight to defend the young girls. He said he knows the exact area where Gina is buried, which is in the offsets in Mine Lamont, Missouri, in Madison County. This campground is located near Fredericktown, where Gina was taken from. 
He believes others are likely buried there as well. He said the abuse went on during the month of August for him and many other children while moving from campground to campground and once even a house. He states that multiple law enforcement officers covered it up along with a doctor that came out to the woods to fix his broken arm and cast. In 2018, Henry Leland and Sandra Sissel were arrested and charged with sodomy and rape of underage female relatives, among other crimes dating back 20 years in their hometown of St. Genevieve County. Sissel was accused of helping and encouraging Leland in the horrific crimes. However, another man has posted a video stating that everything Jason Bohr has been saying about the case is all a lie. But out comes a story within this year about Gina Don Brooks, and it comes from a guy named Jason Boyer. He claims to be a victim of child sex trafficking at the hands of his uncle and his aunt, and that they were supposed to have victimized over 15 other kids, taking them from campground to campground here in Fredericktown, Missouri, for all through the month of August 5th or, you know, 1989. This is what he claims. And in the story, he even claims Gina Dawn Brooks is part of those kids that were kidnapped. He claims that the police covered this up, that a crooked doctor's involved, stuff like that. He even tells a story that they held him down there at Silver Mines for a while, and somehow they end up over at the offsets, where there's more officers who do nothing. Now, when he tells a story about Gina being kidnapped, he says she's grabbed from, guess where? A ballpark. Now, the story, and everybody who knows the story, even witnesses who know the story of Gina Dawn Brooks will tell you she was not abducted at a ballpark. She was abducted at High Street in Franklin near a church. So he's got one story wrong. That story. And you know why? Because see how I looked at this was, I challenged him about this on Facebook. I asked him. I told him, I said, don't you think that before you break that story, you need to get more proof? I said, because everything I've read does not say that she was grabbed at a ballpark. It says she was grabbed at High Street in Franklin. And he told me to believe what I wanted. Soldier on, that's what he said. You know, I'm just simply asking a simple thing that a lot of people will know. I'm asking the truth. So what I figure is that Mr. Jason Boyer, who made these stories of Gina Dawn 1, 2, and 3, is this, just doing stuff to get attention. He does not know the family. He did not know her. He may have been a victim of something, but Gina was not involved with it. What do you think? Let me know in the comments. Either way, Gina is one of 649 missing juveniles from the state of Missouri, and as of June 2022, she has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Jason Mark Huff was born on June 20, 1973, and later served in the U.S. Army as an NCO infantryman and platoon sergeant. At the age of 47, he was living in Cameron, Missouri and working as a high-ranking corrections officer for the Missouri Department of Corrections. He was also a soccer coach and a father of two daughters. He was very well-liked and respected in his community and described as someone with a lot of integrity and honor and an all-around nice guy. In May 2018, a group of 209 offenders in the Cameron prison staged a protest, refusing to return to their housing units after the evening meal. The incident turned into a major disturbance that involved 78 offenders, lasting six hours, and caused over a million dollars in damages. 
Before the violence worsened, Jason and a couple other men ensured the safety of staff and offenders in harm's way by quickly and safely evacuating staff and offenders from the building, containing the rioters inside, and prevented serious injury. He later received an award of valor for his actions. On November 11, 2020, he left his home in Cameron to run some errands. He was seen on surveillance cameras, visiting multiple stores in St. Joseph, Missouri, and was also seen at a Trexmark gas station just off Interstate 29 in Dearborn, Missouri, in the early morning hours of November 12th. He appeared fine, but this would be the last sighting of him, and he would mysteriously go missing. On November 13th, his white 2014 Volkswagen Passat was found by an area farmer abandoned on a rural road near soybean fields in the rural Clinton County, Missouri. This location was four miles north of Plattsburgh and about 25 miles from the Trex Martin Dearborn. The car wasn't linked to him until the next day when he was reported missing by his family, which was three days after he left home. The Cameron Police Department and Clinton County Sheriff's Department began working together to try to locate Jason. Law enforcement and fire departments conducted a large area search with UTVs and two drones in the area where Jason's vehicle was located, along with many volunteers. Many speculate that the car might be a red herring and possibly placed there to throw off the investigation. Those that know him state that he would have never walked away of his own accord. The Cameron Police Department and his family are being very hush-hush about the case and not releasing many details. As of June 2022, he has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Teresa Sue Hilt was born on January 6, 1951 to Mildred and Stanley Hilt. She went by Tess and was described as bubbly, friendly, and outgoing. Tess graduated Chillicothe High School in 1969, and four years later, at the age of 22, she received a bachelor's degree in secondary and elementary education with a major in music education from Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville, Missouri. She was also enrolled in a graduate program leading to a Master of Science degree in guidance and counseling, and she served as a student teacher at the very high school she graduated from. She participated in the marching band, was editor of the school yearbook, was in multiple music groups and several productions, including playing the character Peppermint Patty in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. She was living in the College Gardens apartment, and as a very trusting person, she never locked her apartment and kept a notepad by the door for messages to be left if she wasn't home. On August 3, 1973, she spent some time in town with Edward Happel and then returned to his apartment, which was in the same complex as hers. At 2 a.m., two of Edward's friends arrived and Tess decided to leave and go to her apartment, and they made plans to meet the next day when he got off work from the supermarket he worked at. The next day, about 4 p.m., Edward tried calling Tess several times, but she never answered. After not being able to reach her, he stopped by her apartment and found that the door was slightly ajar and went inside. She was found murdered with gruesome stab wounds in places too gruesome for this video, and a paring knife was found in her right hand with no fingerprints. Her wrist had ligature marks and her nude body appeared to be posed with a neatly folded sheet on top of her. 
Her murder has all the elements of the perpetrator being a sexual sadist. The killer not only wanted to take her life, but to cause as much pain and injury as possible. Strangely, no one in the apartment complex heard anything that night, despite having thin walls, which made it usually easy to hear things going on. There was also no signs of a struggle in the apartment, except for on the bed. During an autopsy, it didn't appear that she had been raped, but there was a possible bite mark on her breast. The autopsy report stated that she was actually still a virgin. Tess had multiple bruises, including a black eye and a broken neck, which was wrapped with nylon pantyhose. It was determined that she had been strangled after she was already deceased. All this is described as overkill by someone with a lot of rage. During the attack, she had also swallowed some of her own hair. However, one of the hairs found didn't belong to Tess, and it was determined that whosever hair it was had a condition called manilothrix, which is a rare disease that makes the scalp brittle and causes the hair to have a beaded appearance and easily fall out. Edward was eventually ruled out as being a suspect, but he was initially the main focus as he was believed to be the last person to see her alive and the one to find her body. But when a new police chief took over, he theorized that a female had actually killed Tess. One reason was the lack of obvious rape and the cleaned-up crime scene left neatly to be found. Within six months, about 200 people had been interviewed and 150 people provided their fingerprints. Some speculate that she may have encountered her killer during the 60-yard walk to her apartment in the middle of the night. Others speculated that her murder was possibly related to the topic of her thesis she was writing at the time, which consisted of alcohol and drug use on the Maryville campus. She had been interviewing multiple local alcoholics and drug users. In a tape recording found in her home, Tess described one man as poorly groomed and mentioned that she intensely disliked him as he continually pawed at her. Shamefully, it was later determined, many years later, that evidence such as the bedsheet, knife, hair samples, and DNA had all vanished and were now missing. After her murder, her wallet was found near the adjacent railroad tracks, and some of her traveler's checks were found in another separate location in an opposite direction from her apartment. One student had refused to take a polygraph exam, and a write-up about it was put in the newspaper. Although it didn't specify if this student was a male or female, rumor has it that it was a female that was known to be aggressive and to be jealous of Tess. It was reported that Tess was seeing an older man, but no other details have been given, such as who he was or if he was a professor at the college. Edward named his firstborn daughter Teresa, and he has since passed away. At some point, some vandals damaged headstones in Edgewood Cemetery, where she is buried, and her headstone was one of them, and her mother had to pay to have it replaced. Alice DeSterler, a blogger with Defrosting Cold Cases, spoke about this case in a presentation, and here is what she had to say. Um, from all the information that we got in, I've been able to uh, draw this, a mind map of what I think the motive is for her murder, jealousy either involving a young man or an older man. Uh, the young man had an interest in Teresa, but there were people who had an interest in the young man. And in the older man's case, Teresa herself had indicated to friends that she was interested in him, 
but she was also fearful for him. Why exactly that is for police to find out, but you can think about a partner finding out about an, uh, an affair. He may have had a temper, or he was in a position of power as opposed to um, Teresa as a student, so maybe even somebody among the faculty members. It's been 53 years since Tess's flame was prematurely snuffed out. She would be 71 years old today, likely a grandmother or even a great-grandmother. But as of June 2022, her killer has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Angela Marie Hammond was born February 9, 1971, to parents Marcia and Chris Hammond, and was known as Angie. She would go on to graduate from Clinton High School and was described as well-liked and popular. At the age of 20, Angie was four months pregnant, engaged to Rob Schaefer, and the couple lived together in a rental home. On April 4, 1991, Rob had plans to go to his parents' house that night and babysit his younger brother. That evening, Rob and Angie attended a barbecue at Angie's mother's house. Afterward, she dropped him off at his parents' house at 10 p.m. before splitting ways with plans for her to meet back up with him later. Angie then hung out with her friend Kyla for the next hour. At 11.15 p.m., Angie stopped outside the food barn store in the center of Clinton at the corner of 2nd Street and Jefferson, which was only seven blocks from Rob, to use the payphone. She called to tell him she was too tired to meet with him as planned and was going home instead. As they were talking, she mentioned a filthy bearded man in an old truck circling around. He then got out and briefly went inside the phone booth next to hers before returning to his truck. He then returned with a flashlight as if he was looking for something. This spooked Angie and she relayed his description to Rob before asking the man if he needed to use the phone and he replied no. Suddenly, Angie screamed and the line went dead. As Rob raced to her location, which was only a few minutes away, he passed the truck going the other way and could see and hear Angie screaming his name. He threw his car in reverse, wrecking his transmission. He was only able to follow the truck for a couple miles before his car came to a stop. He said the truck was a late 1960s or early 1970s model green Ford F-150 pickup with a decal of a fish jumping out of water or an outdoor scene completely covering the rear window, possibly a white top, and possible damage to its left front fender. Witnesses reported seeing a white man driving a similar truck near the telephone booth at the time Angie disappeared. Shortly after realizing that he would be unable to catch up to the truck, Rob flagged down a passing vehicle and the driver took him directly to the police station where he told Clinton police about what had happened and provided them with a description of the man and the truck. He had only been able to retain two numbers on the license plate. The unidentified man was wearing coveralls and a dark colored baseball cap. He had eyeglasses, a beard, and a mustache. After Angie's abduction, Rob was considered a suspect for a period of time and was given a polygraph test and ultimately cleared of making up the whole thing to cover up his own crime. In addition, he tragically lost his baby and his fiancée in the same night to that ugly monster. In April 2021, the Clinton police announced they had a new theory. Around the time Angie was kidnapped, a court proceeding was taking place in the lakes of the Ozarks region, a couple hours south. 
a confidential informant had assisted in the disruption of an illegal narcotics operation and then testified in court. The informant then received a cryptic letter composed of cut and paste characters in the style of a ransom letter. The letter addresses the informant by the number that had been assigned to him to protect his identity before the court proceeding. It also mentions the informant's estranged wife by first name. The letter was postmarked April 4, 1991, the exact date that Angie was abducted, but it would have had to have been mailed out earlier that day before the post office closed, meaning it was premeditated. The informant's daughter's name was none other than Angie. She, along with her mother, were both living in Clinton, Missouri at the time, but this Angie was safe and sound. After speaking with several people, investigators theorized that Angie was taken in a case of mistaken identity and as retribution for the informant providing information that led to the prosecution and disruption of this criminal enterprise. They believe a plan was devised to kidnap the informant's daughter, but a mistake was made and they targeted the wrong Angie. It is also of note that both Angies bear a striking resemblance to each other. However, many believe this theory is too far-fetched. Another theory is that Angie's case may be linked to two other Missouri women that were abducted before Angie. Cheryl Ann Kenny disappeared after locking up a convenience store in Nevada, Missouri on February 27, 1991. Trudy Darby, another convenience store worker in Max Creek, Missouri, was abducted from her workplace on January 19, 1991, six weeks prior to Angie's disappearance. Her nude body was found with a gunshot wound in the Little Neongua River two days later. Half-brothers Jesse Rush and Marvin Cheney were later convicted of the robbery and Trudy's rape and murder. There are similarities between the three cases, but there is no hard evidence to link them. Last theory is she was abducted by a serial killer and the fish decal seen on the back of the truck's window was easily removable to deter his truck from later being recognized. As of June 2022, Angie has never been located and this case remains unsolved. Patrick Norman Chapman was born February 24, 1986. He was described as very social, a jokester, and was always there for those that he cared about. He would marry and have a son, but although the marriage didn't last, the two remained friends. At the age of 34, he lived in O'Fallon, Missouri, and worked as a tow truck driver. On Mother's Day of 2020, he messaged all the women in his life to wish them Happy Mother's Day. Later that day, he stopped by his ex-wife's house and asked to use his son's laptop because he needed to look into his checking account as some money was missing. He said for some reason, he was unable to access the account from his phone. He then drove three hours to Mill Spring, Missouri, where he planned to stay with the family of a woman he knew named Ashley. Ashley had lost custody of her five children due to illegal drug use, and Patrick had plans to help her. Around this time, Patrick was known to couch surf or go camping and did not have a stable home of his own. The people he was staying with in Mill Spring claimed that Patrick was acting strange the night he arrived. He and his car then reportedly went missing in the middle of the night. On June 5th, 
His burgundy 1995 Ford Escort was found abandoned on a four-wheeler path in a heavily wooded area of the Mark Twain National Forest, less than two miles from where he was last seen. The area is so rural and heavily wooded with very rough terrain and no cell phone service, and the car was found in an area where vehicles definitely don't belong. His station wagon's bumper was severely damaged and all the tires were flat. Patrick's identification, medication, wallet, which had no cash in it, and other belongings were found inside the car. However, his car keys and cell phone were missing. His family reports that the car was wiped clean of all fingerprints. His family back home wouldn't realize he was missing right away due to him often camping in areas that don't have cell service. It was about three weeks before Ashley's father told Patrick's family that he hadn't been seen during that period of time. A perimeter around the area the car was found has been searched many times, but nothing has been found. Four months later, the property he went missing from was also searched. If anything was found, that information has not been released to the public. A missing person report was filed on May 30, 2020, but he was last seen on May 10th. Patrick's mother was familiar with the family that Patrick was staying with. They had been exchanging casual text messages, and they never once mentioned that Patrick was missing, and strangely, they had given Patrick's beloved dog away. But the person they said they gave the dog to denied knowing anything about a dog. Also, the neighbor said that the dog was seen coming in and out of the woods on their land for six weeks and was ultimately returned to Patrick's family. The people he had been staying with also gave some of Patrick's belongings away instead of giving them to Patrick's family. It was also discovered that prior to law enforcement retrieving his vehicle, a local couple later admitted to stealing items from the car when they saw it abandoned. Ashley's parents allegedly drove past the search teams yelling profanity and flipping the bird. Many speculate that these people know more than they're revealing. Patrick's family remains frustrated without answers, and his son has been growing up without his father, and as of June 2022, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.